We, uh, we come to this Advent season, and, uh, and again, an opportunity uh, to, uh, to reflect on the return of Christ. And uh, this year, what I'm going to be doing uh, is just following through the lectionary readings uh, for the common year uh, through uh, our Advent season and trying to preach uh, a sermon that helps you see the brilliance of some of the traditional readings and the way in which those who have worked long and hard to understand the rhythms of Scripture have designed these readings to reinforce certain points and realities that are worth reflecting on as we think about Jesus as King and look forward to His expectation and return. Uh, According to basic statistics, as we head into this Advent season, uh, we dropped $7 billion on Friday buying heaven knows what. Uh, And no doubt things we will all remember and cherish for the rest of our lives. Uh, Meaningful, meaningful and significant seven billion. And that's, of course, just because the Christmas season has started. It's interesting that in the church year, Advent is four Sundays. That is, when we reflect on Christ's return and what it looks like to prepare for that, Christmas only has two Sundays. But in the rhythm of our culture, you want to talk about pushing against culture. Uh, Christmas started heaven, what, what was it, two, three weeks ago? Stuff was already on, you know, the counters, wonderful Christmas trees that would sing to whatever music you'd play through your brand new iPad. There is wisdom in slowing down and reflecting on Advent in what it means to prepare for the coming of the King, to prepare ourselves and our world, to take a moment uh, perhaps to slow down from the rush of what it means to either be giving, that others uh, might feel like we remembered them, to think about what we're getting, the rush of that Christmas season and what it's become in our culture, and to take four weeks to slow down And as Paul says in our Romans reading this morning, not worry about providing for our flesh. Those sensory needs and expectations we have. Again, I would imagine, and I do believe in spiritual warfare, that the enemy, given our culture, would love for us to spend most of our time reflecting on Christmas. Something that's already happened. A wonderful, cute little baby born a little bit below the poverty level, but not too bad. In a little manger, beautiful. But I would imagine the powers and principalities would rather we not think much about his return in power, in strength, not nearly as demure, perhaps, as his original arrival. What does it look like to prepare for and think about the return Because our enemies know that next time he comes, it is their end. It is the end of all of their power. They know they're defeated, but hope springs eternal, even among the powers and principalities. Maybe he'll take a little while to show up. We take this opportunity to reflect this Advent season, to slow down and to remember not just what Christmas means, but what Advent promises. 
We've already read two of the readings. Sean read them for us. I'm going to read the reading from Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Hear now God's word. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is near to us now, nearer than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you that you are a patient mentor that you delight to teach. You taught your son what it is to be a son. We ask this morning that you might teach us as your sons and daughters, again, what it looks like to be about the family business, to be about what it is to expect our big brother's return, to delight in it, to celebrate it. We pray that you would bless this time of reflection and preaching upon your word and whatever is said, Lord, that is not true or useful for the building up of your people. May those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So we do live in a time that seems to be marked, I don't know more or less than any time, it's just the only time I've been alive, uh, with a measure of fear, a measure of a sense that this is a dark time that we live in. And it doesn't matter whether one might consider oneself more progressive or more conservative. Uh, those who perhaps uh, run the line of more uh, progressive uh, live in fear of things like climate change. Um, with the changes in weather, Venice getting a little flooded, which seems redundant, but it's flooded at a different level now. Um, Shrinking ice sheets, whether it's human-made or human-exacerbated or just the rhythms of a climate that has gone fairly different ways over the course of the geological record, there's enough anxiety where some young people are thinking about not having children, that they don't want their children to be brought up and raised in a time of such environmental calamity. It's creating anxiety. There is now increasing numbers of people being diagnosed with climate anxiety. So preoccupied with with what may happen that it's hard for them to rest and sleep. Some concerned by the growing inequities in our uh, distribution of wealth. Some folks are concerned that 10% of the folks in this country hold 70% of the wealth. And that that's a 10% increase since 1989. We're not getting more broadly wealthy, we are getting more narrowly wealthy. And that concerns some people that since 1989, 10% have gone from owning 60% to 70%. The bottom 50% of wage earners went from capturing 4% of uh, the funds in in our country, the wealth, down to 1% in that same 30 years. That can be unnerving. We do know that historically, when uh, wealth inequity gets to a certain point, 
things can get a little creative in a country. Russia went through some oddities when, at some point, the the difference in wealth from the richest to the poorest, revolutions happen. People are unnerved by it. Some people are concerned about injustice in the criminal justice system or in immigration. October uh, 2019, just this last October, was the first time that the United States did not accept a refugee into our country since World War II. Not one refugee. For some people, that's a concern. And they wonder what's happening to a country that seems to be where the rich are getting richer, fewer opportunities for immigrants, and climate change might wipe away, which wouldn't be a bad thing, most of Florida. But folks on the other side are concerned for other issues. There's a concern of a loss of culture. The things we knew and understood about family values and what constituted a sense of community and connection. The values of mother and father and family. That there's a loss of a way of life. A way we understood things that has significantly changed and been undermined in that same period of time. And it's unnerving. Seems to be a wholesale throwing into the dustbin of classic culture, good literature, reason, thought, art, and music. Everything is chaos. It's concerning. There's increased uh, competition for jobs, both technologically and from people. Uh, heard recently, Eric Metaxa, the fellow who wrote um, the, uh, the, the wonderful book on um, Bonhoeffer, has a radio show, was talking to a woman named Ann Coulter, who's a conservative thinker, and they were reflecting on the fact that because of their concerns about pressure for jobs, their fear was that the dreamers would be allowed to stay, that the first people that should be uh, ushered out of the country are the folks who can compete most for our jobs, those who already know the language and those who've been trained in our schools, that it's those undocumented young people who can compete that should be taken out first because of a concern about jobs and economic stability. It's a real concern for them that they should be deported first. There has been, uh, in many regards... Uh, a loss of religious freedoms. At least people feel that there's a loss of religious freedoms. Concerns about what may happen in the pressure and politically with uh, the LGBT community. What rights might be lost if a church was to say that they didn't believe uh, that a pre-fall reality was same-sex attraction. That same-sex attraction is something that is a part of the post-fall reality. What happens after Adam and Eve? What happens if we hold a position like that? What could we lose as economic um, incentives and uh, financial protections as religious institutions? People are legitimately concerned that the way things are going, we saw some of the pressures in the last couple of weeks at George Fox with an open letter from folks who are supporters of George Fox but would like a bigger playing field. And an understanding, and not just an understanding, but an endorsement of particular identity choices. Will that lead to a loss of religious freedoms? 
See, what I want to say in this very long opening is we got to realize that whether one is on a progressive side or on a conservative side, that they can and we can look at certain circumstances within our time and our culture and say, my stars, things are getting worse. The darkness is growing. How will we ever see justice and righteousness and wisdom applied in our culture? I want to suggest that uh, there are two main ideas throughout the Advent readings this morning, but we will focus on Romans 13. First of all, reject the night. Reject the notion that it's night and that it's getting darker. Paul says with full-throated, pastoral and prophetic and apostolic power, the night is far past. It is long. Yes, but the longest part of the night is over. I do want to notice real quick, allusion to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, right? We can't do a sermon without one allusion to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Isn't it interesting that the days of Genesis in, Gen- in, in chapter 1 are evening and morning? And here now we pick up that biblical theme that there has been a long night, but there is another day of new creation coming. The dawn is breaking. Creation happens in the day. Life happens in the day. The night is passing. What are characteristics of rejecting the night, according to Paul? Well, me and mine first. Me and mine first. This is the great temptation we must face and defeat. Uh, The temptations that follow are simply ways in which me and mine win and you and yours lose if you compete with me. Night is a place writ by a tooth and claw. Even as it may be sensual pleasures, it is how do I get what I want and I need and I'm somewhat embarrassed because if you shine a light on my passion and my desire to get what I think I need, it's usually a little unseemly. And so to work backwards in verse 13, jealousy. You have more than I do. Now there's two sides of that, right? One side would be concerned, if you're more progressive, about this obsession we have about maximizing profits. The Bible's not big into maximizing profits. You can't harvest to the edge of your field. You live generously. And so oftentimes we find that the difficulties in our culture is that we have adopted a notion that if I can squeeze one more dime of profit, that that's a successful business. Don't know that we can biblically define it that way. At the same time, what we know is Scripture warns that you just don't willy-nilly start taking money from people who have it and giving it to people who don't. It doesn't help. And so whether one is jealous because somebody is wealthy and wants to take what they have, or whether one is wealthy and fearful of still not having enough and building more barns and more barns and more barns until I can say to my soul, be at peace. Either way, that is a form of jealousy and both are signs of the night. I have all I need. I don't need to provide in that most luxurious sense. 
for my physical fleshly needs. Let's be clear here. Paul does realize that it's important to take care of your body. He doesn't enjoy having a thorn in the flesh. He tells Timothy to take a glass of wine for his stomach's sake. This isn't asceticism for asceticism's sake. It is that sense that my pleasure, my need for comfort and ideal circumstances driven by my desires, that is what I war against. That comfort and that pleasure, not good basic needs. This isn't self-abuse for self-abuse's sake. Quarreling, I'm right and you're wrong. No wisdom and no community. What do we desire more than anything else in our current society? Just people who ask questions and listen to us. We speak in sound bites. We speak in whatever particular side we may be inclined to be on. We tend to use talking points fed to us by them, by our own fears. What does it mean to actually stop being quarrelsome? Quarrelsome is a sign of the night because we are people of the light, are God's people modeling the ability to ask questions, to have sympathy as we talked last night for those who hold a different position. Perhaps they've come to it through their own life and experiences in a way which we might be informed to understand. Quarreling is a sign of fear. It's a sign of not having enough. But in the daylight, what can I see? I can see all that I have in Christ. I get a lot less quarrelsome. Sensuality. Feel good no matter what. Again, now we start to head into uh, ways in which um, our need for the self begins to use the other. Sexual immorality just turns the other into a way to meet my needs. Whether those needs are short-term comfort or simply physical release, it is not the intimacy in the one flesh that it was created for. It doesn't fit in the daytime. The orgies and drunkenness move us into that notion, and again, Paul's writing to Rome, a certain sense that eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow we die. This is our only go-round. Whatever happens in the next life will probably be fairly boring and not taste very good. The Greeks thought of things as shades, not richness. There was no joy in the afterlife. A few people got to be gods, but I'm not sure what upside that was. They had to bring their own servants with them. We have communion. The beginning, a promise of a glorious feast. Heaven forbid we think that we should not delight in one another or have joy or have great parties. We all know the difference. One where we're trying to hope and pray and think that Monday maybe won't happen or whatever day you start your work. Self-anesthetizing. The parties of the kingdom are ones that embrace the power of the king. The joy of what it is to be his bride. Reject the night. Reject the ethics of the night, the fear, the lack of vision, the darkness. Again, when we're in the dark, we tend to be more afraid. 
But what do we do then? Well, we rejoice in the light. Paul says, put on the armor of light. Again, if we go to 1 Thessalonians, he unpacks this even more. Some of us have already jumped to Ephesians chapter 6 in the armor of God. This idea of being robed in the righteousness of Christ, but also that this is not just a light cloth. It is an armor. It's meant to move against the darkness, meant to move towards the light and expecting that there will be opposition, that it's not easy. The darkness wants to hold on to us individually and corporately. Put on Christ. Now again, this is not salvation Christ, right? There are different ways that Paul uses this analogy. And salvation in this text is not personal salvation. It is redemption of the world. We have to hold in our minds the idea that God uses a term for more than one thing. And in this situation, putting on the armor of Christ is not simply my justification by faith alone. But it's since I've been justified, I now put on armor to go do something useful. Whatever it means to be adopted as a son or daughter of Christ does not mean that we get to sit on God's uh, eternal couch, delighted in the fact that we are sons and daughters and heirs and delighting in His mercy as we soak up the benefits of His opulent lifestyle. We get off the couch and we follow the King. We put on the armor, the armor of light, We live in an expectation. That's Matthew 24, 36 through 44. That's what that uh, Jesus is telling us. Look, they will feel like normal days. If you want a hint or if you're like, look, I will get serious about following Jesus when, and then you fill in the blank, right? When my particular view of the end time starts to match up with what's happening in the newspaper, then I'm going to get really serious about Jesus. Or uh, when I have a near-death experience or find out I have uh, some illness, then I'll get really serious because I'm about to meet Jesus. Fill in the blank. And Jesus says, look, don't use that as a motivation. Just expect that I'll show up anytime. The whole allusion to Noah is that, yes, some people knew that Noah was nuts enough to build an ark, um, but most of them were just living their lives. They were giving in marriage, and Jesus is saying it will feel pretty normal. Is there a lot of sin in the world? Sure. Were the days of Noah evil? Yes. They were normal, this side of the fall. So in the midst of that sin, there was also normal life. Following Jesus is not just in a moment of crisis. How do we as God's people encourage an understanding that following God into the light means leaving behind some of those things that are, at least in the short term, fun and expedient? And realizing that today is the day of decision. Today is the day to follow. Putting it off to tomorrow might be too late. I don't know what that means as far as salvation is concerned, I know that just assuming that I'll have tomorrow to start being useful for somebody other than myself is a presumption on time that I simply do not have. There is no promise in God's word that I have tomorrow to start. Jesus says, you don't know. Start following me now. You don't know when I'll return. And where do we walk? We're walking towards a light, but this is the beauty of Isaiah 2, right? 
This amazing sense that all of the nations flow to the presence in the throne room of God, basking in the light of day, the full glory of the Lord, shining in a way that we can scarcely imagine, overpowering our senses and helping us to understand that really everything else was a shade, that Plato was on to something when he thought about how all of these things that we see seem to be just not quite real enough, not quite full, that there is something that is more solid, more real, more eternal, if such a thing can be, infinite in its beauty and its glory. When we walk into the light that's strong enough, strong enough for us to see clearly, yes, it will blind initially, as it did Paul, but then you'll be able to see. See the beauty. See that the dawn is already breaking. Realize that darkness is at your back. And that light is ahead of us. This Advent season, my encouragement, my hope, is that we might call out to one another as the psalm that we opened our worship with this morning calls out, Come, come let us go to the temple, to the mountain." Of our God. My belief is, because Jesus says this, is that when God's people head towards the light, in community with one another, living the gospel, that the nations follow, that they will come with as we come into the light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that in this Advent season we might be refreshed and renewed with the promise of your kingdom. Lord, thank you for the resources and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for all that you have given us that we might live as people of the light. Lord, we ask that in times of darkness and in fear where we do feel unnerved and unstable, where we do not know what tomorrow may bring, Lord, that we would have a vision and know what you bring. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.